proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr. I am your host. My partners in crime are not here to join me for this podcast, but I do have a very special guest, somebody we've had on before. He is a church planter, but he's also a professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. His name is Luke Potter. Luke, how are you? I'm great, man. How are you? Good. Appreciate you uh, being on our podcast. And uh, I just was hoping we could uh, dig a little deeper into some issues of philosophy that you are very comfortable in and as well as maybe hit the sacraments today. Well, it's interesting, your, your, let's talk about, I guess, the, the, the planter theologian or the, the planter professor, whatever language you want to use there, and um, that connection, because philosophy itself is going to lend itself to evangelism yeah. in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. And so let's, let's start a conversation yeah talking about how being a, a professor of philosophy has helped you in engaging um, non-believers in your context. Just maybe some basic principles, uh, yeah. concepts of philosophy that have opened doorways for conversations. Yeah, I think that the, the discipline of philosophy does a really good job of training certain instincts that can be really helpful. That there's also a, there are uh, instincts that you can train, especially in analytic philosophy, that will, uh, offend people, easily annoy and drive away people. You you really are trained to argue, to argue well. Um, but analytic philosophy is kind of a stream of philosophy that I think uh, most of the Christian philosophers, if I were to rattle off famous contemporary Christian philosophers, they would be philosophers in this stream, analytic. And there's a kind of well-worn joke that analytic philosophers put the anal in philosophy. And that's true. And it can really um, hurt you. On the other hand, it makes you really precise. And that can be a help. That can be a help. I'd say uh, that's just doing academic and professional philosophy. I think teaching philosophy, though, that's where I've actually seen it help. Uh, Because I teach students at a university that requires 18 to 22 year olds to take a couple of philosophy classes. And 18 to 22 year olds uh, even at Notre Dame, they tend not to want to take that. So they take my class. They end up in my class not because they have heard great things about me or great things about my class, as much as it's maybe uh, the least evil option on the on the board. They're required to take some classes, so I get a lot of students whose interest in philosophy is pretty low. Yeah. And on the one hand, if you're a teacher who's committed to engaging with your students, that makes you work really hard to motivate uh, things, which is very helpful evangelistically. I'm f- trying to find ways to capture their imagination, uh, which as a preacher, as an evangelist, of course I want to uh, 
not show or try to make or try to render the gospel as being relevant, but I want them to see Jesus as being really attractive. To, what what would you say on, on the university steps? I mean, assume assuming that because it's a Catholic university that most people are engaged at least in a Catholic religion. It's That's not realistic, though. Yeah, right? that's probably not. I think, it, so what's great about being at Notre Dame is that I have a lot of freedom and a lot of latitude in like my Like to cuss approach. in class. I can cuss in class. I have tattoos. Uh, they don't care about that, and my students are... Um, surprised at both of those, uh, at both both of those things. The um, there's a lot of freedom given to me to be pretty explicit about the Christian faith. Um, I will uh, at Notre Dame be much freer than I would at any other at any at any state school. I mean, the uh, Catholic Church has still a pretty conservative base, Notre Dame, while in recent years has made uh, steps away from its more conservative moorings, uh, is still um, a, in large sections of the university anyway, still very conservative. And that also makes it very free. What makes it, that, so that's one reason why it's great to be at Notre Dame. It's great to be at Notre Dame because uh, as a Catholic institution, they are dealing with parents who are sending kids and paying a quarter of a million dollars for their kids to get a Catholic education. Hmm. So for uh, a professor to defend Christianity, to uh, tackle objections and show how Christianity could maybe emerge, uh, if not unscathed, at least defensible uh, in the face of those kinds of objections. They're not going to get, they're not going to blink at that. And also I'll be very upfront in, uh, at the classroom. I'll say, look, I understand that Christians are, Uh, thought by and large to be a very weird group in our culture. We believe things about the Bible being literally true. There are things that we believe about the Bible being without error. There are things that we believe about uh, homosexuality that the culture just thinks crazy. And I get to kind of out myself right at the beginning of class in a way that would uh, almost certainly get me fired anywhere else. That's one set of reasons why it's good. The other is, though, it's a culturally... uh, there's a cultural Catholicism in South Bend, but the students, I'll have lots of students, and I don't think I would get in trouble for saying this. I have a lot of students who would say, I was raised Catholic, but I'm not sure that it makes a big difference to me. I, you know, I'll go to Mass occasionally, but um, I will kind of pull the students, uh, not in front of the whole class, but I'll talk to students and ask them. And I get lots of students who will kind of nominally identify or say even uh, increasingly. I hear students say that uh, they were raised Catholics, but they just don't really care anymore. And so I get a lot of students who are not Christians, and that's the other thing. And that combination, non-Christian students, freedom to share the gospel, that's uh, That's that's wonderful. Now, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners may find it hard to believe that a Catholic university is allowing a Protestant to be on staff, let alone uh, teach a core subject like philosophy, but that's not unique at Notre Dame. No. In fact, there's uh, quite a lineage of who's who, and if you could just name a few of those to kind of draw attention uh, for our yeah. listeners. Yeah, that's it, it's certainly the case that a lot of people are surprised um, and maybe even think that it would be a hostile place for a Protestant to be uh, a professor. In the mid-'80s, a guy named Al Planinga um, got hired in the philosophy department, and he's... Uh, he comes from the Dutch Reformed uh, tradition, and 
Uh, he drew a lot of people, like a lot of philosophers wanted to come and work with, uh, with Al. A lot of grad students wanted to come and work with Al. And so we trained a ton for over the last 35, 30, you know, 30-ish years. We trained, we've trained a ton of um, Protestant graduate students who are now at major institutions across the country. Um, but that's just one discipline. So Al was there in the mid-90s. A guy named Peter Van Inwagen joined the philosophy faculties, uh, kind of conservative-ish. Um, Episcopalian, so not again, not Catholic. Um, guys that I have worked with, um, they're younger, so their names wouldn't be known, uh, are also rising stars in, the, in that in this discipline um, in philosophy. But it's not just philosophy. So in theology, which you would really think at a Catholic institution, of course they would uh, be predominantly Catholic, and I think that's probably true. There's the theology faculty. Um, are overwhelmingly Catholic, probably, but they have really heavy hitters who are very serious uh, Protestants. There was a guy named David Ani. I think he's retired now. Um, maybe I should check that. Uh, David Ani was uh, for a long time a New Testament, uh, New Testament professor, and he wrote what I think is still universally considered to be maybe the best commentary on Revelation, the word biblical commentary series. It's this massive thing. I actually sat in on his class in Revelation, and he's Lutheran. Uh, the, if not the world-leading expert in the Dead Sea Scrolls, certainly one of them, a guy named James Vanderkam. Uh, he's uh, at Notre Dame and one of my favorite people. Uh, I used to go to church with him. He's uh, wonderful. Uh, but uh, in history, we've probably had the two We've probably had the three most important Christian historians, all of whom were Protestant and all of whom were at Notre Dame for a long time. So Mark Knoll, uh, George Marsden, and uh, Nathan Hatch. Uh, they were all at Notre Dame. Uh, I'm trying to remember if they ever actually uh, overlapped. I think they did. I think maybe Mark Knoll's first year was George's uh, last um, year. But anyway, you've got these, uh, th th that's just in the humanities, but you've got these, in the humanities, these really heavy hitters. And what happens is they draw a lot of Protestant grad students who want to study with them. Sure. And uh, so it's been, in a lot of ways, an incubator. The university yeah. has been an incubator for a rising class of Protestant Christians who take the life of the mind very seriously. I love that you call Alvin, Alvin Plantica Al. It's I mean, even that's... better than that. I call him Uncle Al. That's um, how he, he, he prefers to be called Uncle Al. See, I'm a so. big Ron Nash <laughs> fan, and Ron Nash like <laughs> idolized Al. Uncle Al. So I rock, I was uh, Al and I rock climbed together for five or six years before wow. we uh, retired. Yeah. We um, and I will tell you, I used to be a much more serious climber than I am now. I'm getting giddy over and, here. Just uh, the thought of that. So. Al could out climb me. I started climbing with Al when he was in his early 70s, and I was uh, 20 when I started climbing with him. So I was in kind of peak climbing condition. And he could just spank me at any time. It was ridiculous how uh, easily philosophy he has a way of doing that. You know, it keeps he's you got, in shape. Yeah, he's got old man You're strength on the rock wall, and he's got old man strength in the uh, in the philosophy room as well. No one can beat him in either place, I think. But to also be there with Mark Knoll and, and, and yeah. George Marsden, if, if our listeners are familiar with uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, was mm -hmm. George Marsden's. I mean, in my opinion, yes. one of his quintessential books. I mean. Yes. He, he, his his biography of George uh, Jonathan Edwards is just amazing. Yeah, he's written absolutely. a lot, but I mean that's for more yeah. recent writings. Um, again, thinking a little bit through philosophy, what would you say some of the the foundational things that maybe we Christians miss 
in engaging um, with our non-believing neighbors that just in a philosophical uh, a framework would be important. Okay, so I'm not sure that this is what you're asking, but I was eventually going to circle around uh, to this as being one of the best things that philosophy brings to the table, I think, is uh, that we're trained to evaluate arguments, and uh, it's very hard to have a very persuasive argument. Uh, arguments are almost always less impressive than the people who uh, propose them. They're almost always less impressive than they think they are. And philosophers are trained to be very, very critical, to see the problems, to see problems or weaknesses, to come up with objections uh, to arguments. And so I think there's a way of uh, taking those skills and becoming really obnoxious and irritating, but there's a way of taking those skills and then becoming um, very uh, tolerant, very humble, and very patient with people. So these, uh, these are three skills. It's in chapter five of a guy named uh, John Inazu. He just wrote a, it's a relatively recent book um, called Confident Pluralism. And in chapter five, he, out, he outlines these as being um, a, a kind of virtue that we need in our society. And as I was reading, it just became clear that analytic philosophers who've been trained to argue are perfectly suited to step into this. Uh, to be tolerant is uh, maybe best defined not as uh, not thinking that the positions that you hold are true uh, or and certainly not to say that everyone's beliefs are true. It's not that. It's uh, you've got a certain set of beliefs, but you uh, are very respectful towards people who disagree, even if they disagree about things that you find really offensive. Um, to be humble, and I think this is maybe the thing that I have been most helped by philosophy and that I think uh, we would do well, that church broadly would do well and pastors would do really well uh, to come away with um, a really healthy and robust kind of humility. You understand the limits of um, what you can prove, you understand just how uh, measured the success of your arguments will be, just how unpersuasive they are, just um, how uh, persuasive they will be, but only to certain people. You'll see that your arguments are just not as strong as you might be inclined to think otherwise. And um, that will make you very ready and willing to learn from other people. So you're not going to be defensive. If you're really humble, you're not going to be easily provoked to a defensive posture because you're going to expect that people are going to see problems with your arguments. You're going to be able to admit, here's a problem with, the, here's a problem with my position or here's something I've not really thought about uh, without being uh, freaked out. That's a crucial uh, virtue, maybe one of the most important intellectual virtues that uh, Christians need to uh, develop. I'll just say uh, patience is a, another virtue, and um, the way that Inazu uh, develops this is very different uh, than maybe what, I'll, what I'm about to say. But being uh, patient just makes you slower to try to convert uh, people who are not yet ready to convert. You're much uh, readier to listen, engage in dialogue over time, to engage with people who are uh, different from you um, over the long haul. And I think that's really crucial. Christians need, sure, uh, sure. Christians need that. So I think it's those postures, more than any particular argument, I it's think it's postures. those postures that um, are most helpful 
for Christians broadly, and certainly that I've found. Uh, which which studying philosophy will help you gain is what I hear you absolutely. saying. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And honestly, you, I mean, I think a great way to do that is in on religious topics. You read. I don't think that you should only read the latest William Lane Craig book or Al Plantinga book or whatever Christian whatever, apologetics yeah. book. I think uh, those are really helpful. I've read lots and lots of those. Sure. But I think reading stuff by people that you disagree with is where you're going to find uh, you grow uh, the most. Let me ask you this. Um, typically, when we think of the Christian living in today's culture, the Christian in evangelism, the Christian in apologetics, Christian in philosophy, whatever uh, angle we want to take on this, but it seems that the burden of proof is always kicked to the Christian. And I take a position that I don't know that the Christian always has the responsibility for the burden of proof. I think it's equally to be shared with the person who is uh, suggesting there isn't a God or Mm -hmm. suggesting that Christ isn't God or that the atonement or the resurrection isn't valid. Um, What do you think of that, the idea that the burden of proof shouldn't always be placed upon Christians? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, But I'll say this, the burden of proof should only be a burden for someone who's actually trying to prove something. So I just think Christians should get out of the business of trying to prove things. I can, the, you can prove some really uninteresting mathematical theorems, and you can prove, uh, you can prove lots of uninteresting... Well, they're not. That's, my friends who are mathematicians, they would hate that I even said that. There are things that most people would consider to be unexciting um, truths that could be proved. Uh, but... So Almost we, any interesting so to, claim. So to hear you right, proved. if we just quit proving stuff, the burden of proof is is not our you know our respons- responsibility. For sure, Ron, I, I, Ron Nash called that a positive apologetics. If it, it, if somebody else is doing their positive apologetics on you, then the burden of proof falls on them. And positive sure. apologetics, positive apologetics is is a harder harder road absolutely. to go. No, I th- I, absolutely, and I think you'll find. Um, in, if you have, if you're engaged in serious conversations about, uh, especially theological or religious uh, issues, issues that people care pretty deeply about, um, you'll get a lot further in those discussions. I think if you're less aggressive in trying to prove a particular claim and instead just asking questions, that there's a way of doing that that puts people on the defense. I don't want to. I don't want other people to feel like I'm put like kind of foisting a burden of proof on them. But I do want to understand why they believe those things and ask them and really get them to think. Why do you Why do you think that? Um, there's a great book by a guy named uh, Randy Newman um, called Questioning Evangelism, and there's a place in the book where he he says one of the best questions that you can ask a person is uh, really. Someone says something, uh, especially with 18 to 22 year olds who are coming from. Uh, you know, who knows what kind of public education or private education they've got. They get to a university, and they have all kinds of crazy beliefs that they picked up from the news or from teachers or from friends. And uh, in a philosophy class, at least, you don't have to wait for very long before you'll hear some of these crazy beliefs uh, and to just ask, really? Do you, actually, do you really believe that? You do. Okay, so can you tell me why? Like, what, 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 reason, what are the reasons for thinking that, I don't know, I don't want to, uh, all the interesting examples are interesting because they're controversial. So I won't say that, but I won't give a particular example. I'll just say um, uh, a cheat or an easy example would be uh, people thinking that there's no absolute moral truth. Uh, That's a 
relativism, we call it freshman relativism. It's uh, the kind of relativism that tends to both live up until your freshman year and no further. Uh, freshman relativism is a claim that a lot of people effortlessly fall into. And as soon as, they're, uh, as, soon as you can successfully get them to stop and examine it, they realize that's not a it's that's hogwash. Not a yeah. L- let me grab another idea. Um, in our worldview, there's, there's, it, it contains all of our systems of belief, everything we, we hold to. Um, there's some of those that are more foundational beliefs that we definitely can't prove. We just, we just accept. Um, then there's other beliefs that are built off of those beliefs. Um, obviously, when you look at those foundational beliefs, things such as theology, specifically the doctrine of God, and the fact that, hey, I believe there's a God and, and other people in their system of belief um, say there's not. I've heard it said that when, when doing apologetics and when, when, when discussing uh, evangelism and evangelizing people, understand that there is a sense in which you're knocking down a whole deck of cards sometimes because you're knocking out a, um, a foundational belief. I don't know if I'm explaining that well. You might be able to, to help, help uh, bring what I'm saying to, to life there, but this idea that sometimes we go in like a wrecking ball not realizing the damage we're doing in in our uh, arguments and our in our um, a, attack of somebody's belief system. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you've got to be. Um, it, so you mentioned uh, beliefs that we would identify in our worldview as being foundational. So I think existence of God is a great example of this. If you were to talk to some of the students, that, like if you were to talk to some of the undergrads that are. Um, I don't know, juniors or seniors now that I've had in the in the past, they wouldn't identify their beliefs about God as being foundational, but their beliefs about identity, sexuality. If you were to go after those, that would feel foundational to them. And I do think that um, the wrecking ball approach, the Miley Cyrus approach, we might say, <laughs> is a bad approach um, for that, for all kinds of reasons. Um, a a different kind of approach, I don't know how helpful the image is, uh, some of the uh, undergrads that I've talked to in the past maybe have found it helpful, but uh, if you th- remember that old game from like the I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, Jenga, so there, it, the, the idea is you've got all these blocks stacked up and you're uh, told to pull blocks out from a lower place in the stack and set them on top without toppling things. And the way that you do this is that you gently tap you, you'll go low, you'll go to foundational kinds of beliefs, as it were, and you're going to gently tap them out. And uh, you've succeeded if you're able to pull it out without toppling things over. Now, there are certain kinds of beliefs. So I, what I want to tell uh, my students is that, you know what, you can, it, it feels really central to you, sexual, this belief that your beliefs about sexual identity, sexual orientation, what it is to be a human, you, these things feel very central to you. Well, I, if I come in as a pastor or as a philosopher or uh, as an apologist and I'm trying to um, get at that belief, I'm going to gently try to tap that out without toppling, without toppling it over because I want to say, look, there's, another, there's a different way of thinking about human identity, and uh, it's a way of maintaining, a lo- maintaining your life. You can still flourish uh, as a person. Um, even if you give up this belief. There are certain other kinds of beliefs, though, if you just don't believe in God. Well, then I do think the right idea is uh, 
you know, I mean, that's a that's the kind of block that if you try to knock it out, it doesn't matter. That's too crucial of a block, and your tower will fall out. So I do want to show that without God, there are certain things you're just never going to be able to make sense of. Uh, I think moral values and evil are things that um, become really intractable uh, problems uh, for them. And I want them to see, oh, man, there is, this is, in a certain way, more of a wrecking ball uh, situation. When, when push comes to shove, uh, both of us being Presbyterians, obviously heavily influenced by presuppositionalism, Cornelius Van Til and, and the like, um, we're going to come down and say, look, apart from the Spirit's work in somebody, there's no argument that necessarily is going to work. But discussion, arguments, reasoning, defending the faith, these things are important and play a, a, play a, a vital role in, in our calling to evangelize. Um, what do you think are some of the hardest lessons for church folks like us who have the tendency to go to a local Christian bookstore and you pick up the latest apologetics books that somebody wrote and gives us a few new arguments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, evidence that deva- demands a verdict, that kind of book. And we run down, we, we yeah. memorize a couple of quick uh, logical arguments, and now we're looking for our neighbor to, to begin a debate. You know what yeah. I mean? And we're missing a key understanding that this really is about depending upon what God's doing in 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 somebody rather than mm-hmm. an argument or a yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you know. I mean, if I uh, I've not had very many. So some of the guys that I've discipled over the years have uh, gravitated towards me because they see a guy who likes to argue and who at least in a class where he kind of controls everything, it seems like he knows what he's doing and they want to argue a little bit more. And, uh, if I, you know, when I've had guys that have had that impulse, the impulse to argue um, people out of positions or into it, uh, I'll actually, maybe this would seem counterintuitive, but I'll just let them do it for a little while because I sure as hell wouldn't have realized that that doesn't work until I spent years, like, as an undergrad and then uh, as, a, as a young grad student talking to undergrads, and even before I was an undergrad, uh, taking the latest Francis Schaeffer and C.S. Lewis arguments that were so persuasive to me and getting nowhere, exactly nowhere, with people over and over and over again. I think uh, one way to get people to give that, to kind of relax on that kind of stuff is to try to argue, out, argue them out of it. Um, I've not found an argument that's very successful, but if you actually care about people and you want to see them embrace the gospel, I think you'll find very quickly that um, arguments play a role. There's a role for them to play, but it's much more limited than we're inclined to think. And so I'd just say, let them, I'd just say, hold their hand, like hold guys' hands, hold church members' hands, encourage them. You know, I think it's great uh, to read apologetics, mostly because I think it helps. Um, it, I think one of the major reasons why apologetics is worthwhile for the average church member is because it get, it's one of the means that God uses to give and to build confidence in sharing the faith, not because it's the best means to actually sharing uh, the gospel. And I think what happens over time is your confidence in your abilities to argue the strength of your arguments, that goes down, but your confidence that Romans one sixteen is actually true, that the gospel is God's power for salvation So what I hear you saying, what I hear you saying is hold their hand because there's going to come a point when they realize their arguments aren't working. Sure. 
and that's a teachable moment yeah, absolutely. to rely yep. on And God. you want to go with them into that because yeah. I think, uh, so one, one of my classes is a C.S. Lewis, we do a lot of C.S. Lewis stuff, and the first thing I have them read is an essay that Lewis wrote called Meditation in a Toolshed, where Lewis says there's a difference between if you're standing in a dusty toolshed, you can see a beam of light, and you can look at it, and you can see the dust motes kind of floating, and then you can step into uh, the path of that ray and look out through the window. You can look along the uh, sunbeam, and it's two totally different experiences. And one of those tends to be, both of them are worthwhile. Looking at something, appreciating something from the outside is worthwhile. But one of those tends to be more transformative of an experience. And when you look along something, you understand it in a very different way, a much less clinical way, a much less detached way. And so it's one thing to be told by me, arguments have such a limited role. Your arguments, these arguments that seem so strong to you, they're only, they only seem strong to you because of where you grew up, the kinds of stuff that you've read, the schools that you went to, they seem they have all this plausibility that a lot of people that you talk to, they won't have that. And so they get no these arguments will get no traction. It's one thing to be told that. It's another thing to so that's looking at that truth uh, from the outside. It's another thing to step inside and to look along it and to be talking to someone and realize they just don't care about what I'm trying to argue. That this moves them not at all. These these utterly convincing reasons for thinking the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. Get no purchase. They couldn't care less. Uh, they need, I think that can be a, one of, the reason, one of the reasons I say hold their hands during that time is because that can be a pretty um, jolting, that can be, a, that's a teaching moment, that's what you called it, absolutely, but that can also be kind of freaky for people. People can really start to wonder, is is that why I believe? Like, is my faith basing? Is my faith resting on these weak arguments, these unpersuasive arguments? That can be a pretty shocking sure. thing. Let's do this. Let's turn the page of um, philosophy and now look at a um, an aspect of Christian doctrine that is very mysterious, mm-hmm. and the the doctrine of the sacraments. And of course, in the Protestant. Um, perspective. Um, we believe there's two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But in our time together, I want to kind of focus on the Lord's Supper because I know it's an area you're passionate about. And there's obviously um, a lot of mystery there. There's a lot what's not known. There's a lot of misunderstood um, per- perceptions of that. But I know that that was one of the main things that actually brought you into a more Reformed Presbyterian position. And so I was hoping you could share your journey through the sacraments, specifically the Lord's Supper, and what God was kind of revealing to you in that process. Yeah. Well, this is one of the this is one of those places where there's actually a fair bit of overlap. I had spent as a philosopher a lot of time reading a guy named Thomas Aquinas, who you know he's, it's before the Reformation. Um, in a lot of ways, he his approach to God's sovereignty is much more um, Calvinistic. We, we would say, I mean. Obviously, Calvin wasn't around at, at that time, so that wouldn't have been uh, how he would have described himself. He was himself just biblical. He was just being biblical, that's right. Uh, so uh, Aquinas uh, is a really important ph- uh, philosophical thinker, um, very hard to overstate his importance. But I'd read some of, uh, he's got a set, it's in some ways a systematic theology where he talks at length about um, the sacrament, and I will got, I've got to say, he was uh, quick, I thought, to punt to mystery, and when he wasn't, 
quick to do that. He was bringing in uh, philosophical terms and concepts that, to me, it it felt like they muddied the water. And I left my time with Aquinas on the sacraments feeling um, frustrated, confused, disillusioned. And uh, I read Calvin's Institutes. Um, I hated Calvin. I hated Calvinism. Uh, when I was kind of a middle teenager, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, but along the way, uh, to we all have a, to rebel at some point. So yeah, so, well, and so I wanted to, I wanted to take it to him, and so I read the institute. I got, I, I was a teenager, and I as a teenager, you're reading the institutes. Well, but I was a so I was young when I went to school, so I was reading it in college. So it was, it was, it didn't feel like a really early thing. Um, to me, but I'm so I'm reading the institutes, and um, in some ways, my experience in the institutes confirmed some of what I thought. I think there are times when Calvin's uh, instinct is to go on a tangent and argue against somebody who holds an, an opposing view. And at the time, I just thought, how uncharitable could you be? How how mean spirited could you be? And it, it kind of reinforced what I uh, what I didn't like about Calvin, not realizing what I now realize that there were real consequences to holding these views and to getting them wrong at the time. And so Calvin thought he was really serving people by pointing these things out. But as you go on through the Institutes, when you get to the uh, book four in the Institutes, he's, um, he starts talking about the sacraments, and it just bowled me over. I was completely uh, unprepared for what I read there. And um, basically it was kind of book four, 17, chapter 17 and following, uh, that really won me over. And I didn't know anything about Presbyterian at the time, Presbyterianism at the time, but whatever that guy was, I wanted to be that. Uh, he he did talk about there is he did acknowledge that there's mystery, but it didn't feel like a cop out. It felt like the only natural reaction. Uh, he'd he'd kind of explored in um, less uh, technical philosophical terms, but still intellectually satisfying terms, what was going on in the sacrament. And it just, I don't know why God used that. Uh, I've never encountered anyone else, uh, who had the same kind of, uh, draw, uh, who felt the same kind of draw to Calvinism or to Presbyterianism, but that's what God used used to grab hold of me. So, um, so let, let's talk for a few minutes. What is Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper? Well, to a certain extent, I think that people are right to think that the best way to understand Calvin's view is to understand what he was reacting to. Um, In a minute, I want to make sure that I'm clear. I think if you stop there, you do a disservice to everyone, and you do a disservice to the Lord's Supper if you stop there. And I think even even maybe especially Presbyterians... um, effortlessly fall into that mistake. Uh, so Calvin, um, the, there's a big question about what happens in the Lord's Supper, and uh, in the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 27, the uh, sacraments are described, and these guys were, writing, were kind of like first generation, second generation uh, after Calvin, so kind of really close to him. They knew him really well, but um, they're writing after Calvin. And they describe these, uh, the sacraments as uh, signs and seals. And one of the things that Calvin was uh, reacting against was how the sign, a 
of a sacrament relates to the thing that it's signifying. And he would, I think Calvin would say, and, and I would say, that um, Roman theology uh, will, con- they will transform the sign into the thing that's signified. So we have bread, and that's a sign, and it literally substantially becomes, it's transformed into the thing that it signifies, the body of Jesus. We have wine here, and it uh, is a sign and turns into or becomes the thing that it signifies, the blood of Jesus. Uh, Calvin thinks that's not a great way to go. Too um, far. That's... Uh, for for several reasons, that's a that's not the that's not the way to go. Um, a guy that he is much closer to in a lot of respects, uh, Martin Luther, uh, he would say uh, Luther and certainly Lutherans, the people in Luther's uh, school, uh, in some ways what they do is worse because they just confuse the sign with the thing that's signified. And uh, I think it's probably harder for evangelical Protestants, whether they're Reformed or not, uh, to appreciate this. But I think both Calvin and Luther would say uh, it's way worse to do, of all the ways you can screw up, the ways Vingley screws up is the worst because he separates the thing that's the sign and the thing that's signified. And that's a... uh, And for our listeners, when we talk about Luther, that was consubstantiation, which uses all the prepositions to say it's still the bread... And Christ is there within it, he's on it, he's under it, he's over it, he's around it. And that's where it gets all so confusing, because they're really not saying... They're saying too much, but not saying enough, and it, it becomes yeah. a very um, confusing thing. It, that, that's a great adjective, confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very confusing thing, because Luther and Lutherans after him, they didn't like co- the description, consubstantiation, right. consubstantial, because they wanted to get rid of all of the... Um, the the Roman philosophical apparatus that ex, the substantial apparatus that helped to explain it, the Roman uh, approach said if you think about the philosophical concept of substance and the accidents, the accidental properties, the things, a color, taste, those kinds of properties, if you think about the uh, the sacrament with those terms, it makes total sense what's going on, and Luther just thought. As soon as you start trying to bring Aristotle in, that's a disaster. So if you had ever said to Luther or a, a committed Lutheran, you're a consubstantia, uh, consubstantiationist, they would have rejected it. And then it just is totally confusing. So what are you saying? Like, how is uh, the Lord? Really Most Lutherans I talk to just like to talk about his mystery. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Now, I do actually do think there's, you know, I'm sympathetic to saying that. It's, I think better to punt to mystery than to say something. To go into the Zwingli view, which you said he was separating the two. Work that out a little bit. Yeah, so Zwingli, and, uh, you know, that's how Presbyterians talk about this. I did not grow up in this church, and this was just the view. And the view was just that baptism and the Lord's Supper, even calling them sacraments, not a great thing, call them ordinances, uh, call them something that makes it clear that nothing special is going on. And it's not the craziest view. Um, they will put the accent or put the emphasis on saying, um, you know, Jesus tells us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when he does, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So it's a memorial. It's this thing that we do to testify to the faith that we have. Um, That's what I think the dominant Protestant evangelical position is. 
and it's uh, just memory. It's just it's Let's just that. Just and uh, I want to be clear. I'm a I'm a Calvin. I'm Reformed, capital R, about this. So I follow Calvin, and I think it's a memorial. It's just I think it's that and other things. I think for sure, it's a place where we remember what the Lord's done. It's. It is that. I just think that when you put all of the New Testament texts that talk about this together, um, it's hard to think that that New Testament picture of this meal uh, can be fully described as only a memorial. So there is something that's going on there. So let's get back to what Mm -hmm. Calvin and the Presbyterian view is. What is going on? Yeah, I think... So Calvin... um, Well, uh, let me just give the thumbnail sketch. So I think Calvin would say, look, one of the problems with the both the Roman and the Lutheran approach to this is that they've got God coming down into the bread and into the wine. And uh, there's a there was a great book uh, by a guy named Doug Farrow, um, who at the time that he wrote it, he was an Eastern Orthodox guy, a book called Ascension and Ecclesia, a great book. And he said uh, he, there's a place, kind of 150-ish pages, uh, in where he's grappling with why Calvin makes so much of the Ascension. Um, and for Calvin, the Ascension posed a real problem. Pharaoh was realizing this is a real thing. The bodily Jesus is gone. He's really in heaven. The, he's got a resurrected body, but it's an actual material body, and it's in heaven. And we've got to grapple with that as Christians. Jesus is no longer here. And uh, so for what Calvin does, he does not say that Jesus comes down into the elements. And that's where Roman and Lutheran uh, theologies go amiss. God might come down, but Jesus doesn't come down. God comes down, Calvin at a couple of places, maybe in the Institutes for sure, a short treatise on the Lord's Supper, maybe a sermon or two. He'll talk about uh, God coming down by the Spirit, but only to unite us to our ascended Lord. So Jesus stays in heaven at the Father's right hand. Uh, And when Calvin talks about the spiritual presence, it's not spiritual because it's metaphorical or symbolic. It's not uh, substantial. It's a spiritual presence because it's the Holy Spirit who comes down and who uses these, uh, these very physical things to unite us to Jesus so that we can actually get and experience and uh, feast by faith on hence body the, and blood. Hence the terms means of grace. Right. That's right. That's right. So uh, so that picture, this idea that the Spirit really does come down, but He doesn't just come down, He comes down to, to unite us, to feed us on Christ and all of His, his benefits. Uh, that was a transformative and a really gripping uh, picture for me. And, you know, for the last, I don't know, 14 years, 15 years or something, uh, when I take the Lord's Supper, it's a different kind of experience for me because um, it's not like I feel like there's some magical thing uh, every Sunday that we take the Lord's Supper, uh, some mysterious, mystical, confusing, nebulous experience. It's not, it's not like that at all. But even when I feel cold and dry, I know the Spirit's actually at work. And uh, I find my faith being strengthened, my faith being fed. Um, and I want to hold that picture out uh, to my people to remind them that the Spirit's really uh, at work here. And this is, so you didn't ask, but I'll just say, it's one of the reasons why it, I'll just say, it confuses me why Presbyterians who 
at least theoretically, believe this, why you would not want to um, take the Lord's Supper a lot. If the Spirit's actually doing something special here, then... um, Well, we want to make it more special, I always hear. (laughs) I always explain, I don't lock my wife in a closet and only pull her out once, you know, in a blue moon. Yeah. She's not more special then. I will say this. I think that they're exactly right, that if you do something every week, people will take it for granted, and... Uh, it might not feel all that special. I think that's probably true. I, but I think it's true. If it's true of the Lord's Supper, I think it's true of singing. Yeah. I think it's true of preaching. Um, one of the, there's this great place in the Belgian Confession where, where, where we're kind of told that preaching isn't just this guy preaching. That's God speaking. Like God actually speaks in the preaching of God's mm-hmm. word. That's a that's a staggering claim. Yeah. And so I don't ever want to uh, gather uh, with our people without hearing God speak and then Amen. being fed by God himself. So yeah. um, now, I don't think you're required to do that. I don't think the New Testament teaches that you have to celebrate the Lord's Supper every For as week. often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's not given how That's often. Right. That's right. So I think, that, I think that there's freedom here. And for sure, I mean, I grew up, I think we did it for, there were periods of time where we would do it once a year. And it was a big deal. Um, we, um, uh, New City is planted in an urban poor context. And uh, sometimes we've done stuff with African-American congregations in our neighborhood, and they won't take communion with us, not because, of, not because what we teach is incompatible or that they think there's something deeply wrong with it, but because for them, in, in these two congregations, uh, anyway, they take the Lord's Supper once a year, and it's a huge deal to prepare. Mm. And I remember the pastor, um, who's a good friend of mine, uh, we were worshiping with them, and he mentioned in the sermon that he realized that it kind of clicked for him that we also think it should be a big deal. And you should absolutely prepare yourself, but you should do it every week. You should do it every time before you come yeah. uh, to the Lord's Supper. And I think uh, when he said it out loud, it was convicting for me because I realized I don't stress that enough for our people. Yeah, they re- This is one of the things that happens. You start taking, you, there's something to this objection that it loses its specialness or it becomes rote or routine in a bad way. First, First Corinthians chapter 11 gives a, a clear warning. It's not to be taken lightly. That's right. And, um, and that's I think right. that's why some congregations try to make sure they're doing all they can yeah. to help guard it in a special way. Absolutely. But at the same time, if there's something really going on there, yeah. why would we not want to? Yeah. Uh, as a pastor, I'll say I feel the burden to... Um, think about this, to pray about this, to prepare my own heart, to, uh, I read really broadly, uh, one of the best resources on this, uh, a guy named Matthew Henry, who, he's a, he was a Presbyterian, but lots and lots of people read his stuff now, he wrote a commentary on the whole Bible that you don't have to be a Presbyterian to appreciate, he wrote a book called The Communicant's Companion, and you can get it relatively cheap on Amazon, but it's a, uh, it meant, a communicant meant uh, someone who's getting ready to take communion. And it was a companion to prepare. And the the whole book, it's all gold. And it's uh, a mountain of resources for just how rich and how special communion is. And as a pastor, I read it and I think, here are all kinds of ways and here are all kinds of things that I can say to my congregation to help keep it fresh uh, for them, to, get, to make sure that they realize that this isn't something we want to come to just because it's what we do after the sermon. Um, but there's something rich and robust and transformative that's going on here. So not only do we not want to deprive ourselves of it, but we want to get the most out of it, and we want to be as prepared as possible.
Luke, I got to say thank you. This has been uh, wonderful. In fact, I'm kind of glad my partners weren't here because finally I got to have a real conversation of some depth. Just joking. Just joking. That's your way of I saying love, it was boring? No, no. I, I, I love my partners, but, you know, uh, you know, how often do you get to sit across from somebody who rock climbed with Uncle Al? So. Hey, that's right. That's right. No. But, again, thanks for your time, and uh, everybody out there, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. Be sure to like our Facebook page.